Amen. Will you join me in prayer? Almighty God, the Lion of Judah, the sacrificial lamb given on our behalf, we come before you now. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son Jesus for our sins. And we praise you for what all you've done, what all you're doing, and what all you're going to do, both in the life of this church and in the lives of each person that is part of this church body. We thank you so much. Lord, we lift up this morning to you. We have worshipped. We have prayed. And Lord, now we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to your word. That you would change us to be more like you in all of our ways. Help us to learn to place you as king of our lives. And to fully understand what your kingship, what your royalty calls of us. We thank you again and we pray all of this in the name of our king, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning and welcome. I want you to take your Bibles or your apps or whatever you read on and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we've got Bibles in the pews. Just grab one of those out of the back of the pew. If you're not familiar with where John is at, uh, just turn to the table of contents in the beginning of your Bible. You're going to look for the big section called the New Testament Uh, So in the New Testament, the book of John is in that section, and it is the fourth book in the New Testament. So just go to your table of contents, look for the section called the New Testament, go find the fourth book, the book of John, and turn to that page. John chapter 1 is where we'll be. By the way, if you don't have a Bible uh, yourself, you don't own one, please, uh, we want everybody to have a Bible that they can have at their home, that they can read and study and reference. Uh, So if you would like a Bible, please take that Bible out of the pew at the end of the service and take it home with you. Uh, Let that be our gift to you this morning uh, because we want you to have a Bible. Now, I want to tell you about a day that my life changed. It was July 17th, 2004. I didn't sleep the night before at all. I was sweaty all day. I was a mess. I was a wreck. I I barely ate most that day. I spent pretty much most of the day at the church, actually. Uh, That was when I was still working at First Baptist Church of Happy, Texas. And so uh, I spent a a good portion of my day there at the church. Uh, Actually spent a good portion of my day at the church in one single room. Um, I had set the room up intentionally with lots of food uh, and some things to entertain myself with and some friends of mine that came uh, to hang out with me because I knew that I was going to be in this room pretty much all day. And so... Around 4 o'clock is when I really started getting truly nervous. You know when you have a big day and you kind of start getting sweaty and you you get the shakes a little bit? That was me that day. About 4 o'clock I was uh, getting antsy. I was starting to breathe a little heavier, kind of shaky a little bit. And a little bit before 5 o'clock I stepped out of that room in a tuxedo and I made my way into the sanctuary where I stood at the front And I married my beautiful wife. Biggest day of my life. And in that day, I committed my loyalty to her. Uh, And I didn't make any qualms about it. I made a commitment that day that she would be the one and only woman in my life moving forward. 
And I've kept that commitment. I've not been with any other woman. I've not, you know, done anything like that. My devotion is to her. My thoughts are on her. Of course, I have a devotion and a commitment that's higher than my wife, though, right? My commitment to Jesus Christ is far superior to my commitment to my wife. As a matter of fact, my commitment with my wife is influenced by my commitment to Jesus, isn't it? Wives, husbands, widows, widowers, you know what I'm talking about here. So we're going to talk about today your commitment, your loyalty to something. And so I want you to take your Bibles and look with me at John chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 19. Verse 19. Now let me give you a recap as you're finding verse 19. Uh, We've been looking at the life of Jesus and we will be looking at the life of Jesus for the next year. And we have gone through the the process of seeing Jesus' birth foretold to multiple people. We have seen his birth and what happened uh, around those circumstances. We've looked at what happened directly after and some people that visited him. And then we've looked at just last week that Jesus, as a boy of 12 years old, goes and uh, visits, goes and sees the temple for the first time as an adult... Uh, You know, they were considered adults around 12 or 13 years of age. And we find out that Jesus longed to be in his father's house. The moment he was eligible to be there, he stayed and spent extensive time in his father's house because that's where he wanted to be. And now we fast forward to now his adulthood. And so look with me in verse 19. This is all about John the Baptist. Uh, which was going to lead us into something that John the Baptist does with Jesus. It says this, Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him again, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Well, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one who, do not, who you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to even untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now keep your fingers there because we're going to come back to this passage. We're not, we're not done yet. But I want you to notice something about John here. John is being approached by the religious leaders and they're asking him, who are you? Well, let's back up. What is, what is important about John? Well, John, we find out from, from some of the other gospels that John was in the wilderness. He, he kind of was a rough Rugged man, man, he lived in the wilderness. He ate honey and bugs, locusts. Uh, he, he wore uh, this, this uh, tunic that was made of, of hair and he wore a leather belt around. He was a, he was a manly man. 
And then he comes into the scene back towards Jerusalem, a little closer. He comes to the Jordan River and he starts baptizing people. Now, now back then, baptism uh, was only used by someone converting into something new. Uh, in the Jewish faith, the only times that someone was ritually dunked underwater and brought back up was in two separate occasions. The priests would do it before they went inside the temple to worship. Some of them would, would immerse their entire body and cleanse themselves. Uh, the second occurrence where that would happen is if a non-Israelite person, what the Bible calls Gentiles, if a non-Israelite person converted to the Israelite faith, then one of the things that they would do is go and be baptized. They would go and dunk their entire body underwater and come back up as a symbol of re uh, rejecting their old faith, their old ways, and embracing the ways of God. And so John is out in the Jordan River baptizing people. And the Pharisees are saying, why in the world do you have authority to do this? If you're not the Messiah, if you're not uh, the, the Elijah, if you're not the prophet, and by the way, the prophet uh, is a reference to a passage in Deuteronomy 18 where Moses predicts the coming of a great prophet uh, that will be the, the greatest of all the prophets who had ever come. It's obviously a prophecy about the Messiah. And John denies that he's any of those. And so they're going, well, how can you baptize then? What authority? Who are you? And he said, I'm a nobody. As a matter of fact, I'm so nobody-ish that what I'm doing is just a precursor to what the true one will come and do. I will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He is so powerful. He is so great that I am, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. The reference there is that if a wealthy person uh, had been walking around the city, he would come home and his servants, as he walked in the door, the first thing that happened is his servants would come to him, they would undo his, 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 the buckles of his sandals, take them off, and they would wash his feet because you walk around a dirty street all day in sandals, what are your feet going to look like? They're disgusting. And so your servants would come and they would wash your feet. John is saying, I'm not even worthy to do that. I'm lower than the servants. Of these wealthy people. I can't even take his sandals off. He's so high and mighty. He's so perfect. And so he continually points these religious leaders to Jesus. He never takes credit. He never talks about himself. He constantly points to Jesus. And Jesus hasn't even come on the scene yet. Jesus hasn't even been public in his ministry up until this point. So... Here's my big idea. I'm going to reference this throughout the morning. Here's my big idea for this morning. The thing I want you to go home and remember and think about and apply to your life all week and moving forward. And it's this. His royalty demands our loyalty. The royalty of Jesus Christ demands our loyalty. Not just most our loyalty, not some of our loyalty, all. Of our loyalty. Everything we are should be looked at through the lens of the kingship of Jesus over our lives. So let's look at some more of this. Look with me in verse 29. Verse 29. 
So he's been having this conversation with the religious leaders. And look what he says here. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. So verse 29, John sees Jesus coming and what does he say? He says, look, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. We actually just sang about the Lamb of God. Worthy is the Lamb. The Lamb of God. What was a lamb back then? What was the symbolism? Well, the most important ritual that the Israelites observed was the honoring the, the, the Passover. The Passover meal. Outside of their sacrifices, and which I'll come to in just a moment, the Passover was the biggest thing that they did year in and year out. Now, what was the main uh, central piece of the Passover, it was a lamb. A perfect lamb without blemish. Why? Because if you go back to the book of Exodus, if you read Exodus 1 uh, through like uh, 19, you go and read the book of Exodus, it tells you all about the journey of the Israelites as they uh, go through Pharaoh not letting them, setting them free and God bringing the plagues. Well, the last plague was the plague of the firstborn son. And before the plague came, God sent a message through Moses and Aaron to tell the people, take a lamb tonight, slaughter it, prepare it, take its blood, and put the blood over your doorpost. And when that blood goes over the doorpost, that blood will be a covering, will be a symbol to the death angel that's coming And that angel, when it sees the blood shed on your doorpost, that angel will pass your house by. And those inside will be saved. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens uh, in the book of Exodus. And so the Passover lamb was huge to them. It was a major element in their celebration of Passover. But what's the the symbolism there? Well, of course, we see it now through Jesus. Jesus shed his blood, which covers us. And we're no longer uh, subject to eternal death, but we receive eternal life. He's the perfect sacrificial Passover lamb. But something else about the lamb. The lambs, uh, during Jesus' day, a lamb was offered every morning and every evening, all, every day throughout the year. And those lambs being sacrificed were for the sins of the people of Israel. And so they were, they were sacrificing lambs twice a day. And so when John says, look, the Lamb of God, what is he saying? He is predicting the sacrifice 
of the Savior, of the one who will perfectly cleanse our sins with his perfect sacrifice, with his blood. You see, here's an interesting part that I want, to th- want you to think about. In Jesus' day, when you went to go celebrate the Passover or you brought a lamb to be sacrificed at the temple, you were bringing that lamb to cover your sins. You were saying, here is my lamb with, without blemish so that you can sacrifice it so that I can be forgiven. But with Jesus... It's God coming to us and saying, here's my completely perfect lamb to be sacrificed for you on your behalf. You see the difference? There's nothing that you and I could do. There's no perfect blemish-free lamb that we could offer that would bring us salvation. We needed God to bring his lamb. We needed God to sacrifice his lamb perfect lamb and who was his perfect lamb it was God Jesus Christ the son of God himself the second person of the trinity that's what we needed because we couldn't do it on our own see this was his lamb it was not a lamb it was the lamb and it's interesting because if you go and read Revelation chapter 5 it talks about the king the lion of the tribe of Judah, but then there's a shift. So I'm going to read you Revelation 5, and this is verses 5 and 6. Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6, it says this. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders... I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into the earth. The elder, because John, the writer of Revelation, John's upset because he doesn't see how things are going to go well in the predictions that he's seeing. And then one of the elders walks up and he goes, whoa, wait, don't worry, there." There's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He's building this picture of this conqueror, this king. Because those were the predictions given in the Old Testament. That he would be like a lion. That he would be from the root of David. It's it's imagery that's pointing people to the kingship of Jesus. But then, when John looks over, what does he see? He sees a lamb. He doesn't see a roaring lion He sees a lamb that's bloodied from being sacrificed. Jesus gave everything for you. Jesus gave his life. Jesus suffered for you. So that he could not just save you from your sins. But so that he could be king of your life. His royalty demands our loyalty. Now, John alluded, uh, John the Baptist alluded to uh, there being a baptism and that, that, that God had told him, had prophesied to him that the one whom he saw, a dove, the Holy Spirit, come down and rest upon, then that was the Messiah. So listen to what Matthew chapter 3, 
Verses 13 through 17 says, this is Matthew's account of the baptism of Jesus. Look at what it says here. When Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let this be so now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens opened up to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Baptism. Jesus gets baptized. I've, I've made references multiple times this morning to rituals. Now, we as good Baptists kind of have a hard time with rituals and the idea of rituals. Every Baptist church that I've ever been a part of has kind of been leery about the rituals of other denominations. But let me tell you this. Go read the Old Testament. There is some kind of value, whether we understand it or are comfortable with it, there is some kind of value that God gives to the rituals that he gave to us. You go read just Leviticus and man, it's ritual after ritual after ritual after ritual. And God doesn't just say, hey, go do these things. He said, you go do them or you will die. He took them very, very seriously. And he lays out instructions on how they're supposed to be done. And they were, it was important to do them exactly how God ordained them. There's something about rituals. Now, as Baptists, we have two main rituals. We have the Lord's Supper and we have baptism. We'll come to the Lord's Supper in another message. But baptism is a ritual that Jesus commands us to do. Go read Matthew 28, the very end, the last few verses. You're going to see that Jesus commands us to make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The fact is, and hear me clearly on this, Christian, follower of Jesus, hear me clearly, this is important to God. If it wasn't, Jesus wouldn't have done this. What is baptism? Well, baptism is simply this. It is a symbol of us dying to our old ways when we did not know Jesus... So that's the putting under the water. It is a symbol, and, and if you're wanting proof of this, go read Romans 6 or Colossians 2. It is a symbol of us dying to our old ways, and when we come back, back up out of the water, it is a symbol of us embracing and living the new life with Jesus as our King, our Master, our Lord, our Savior. And so baptism is important to the Lord. Why would God give it to us if it wasn't valuable to him? And so Christian, hear me on this. If you have not been baptized, please do it. Uh, we will do whatever it takes here at First Southern to make that happen for you. If you want to get baptized right here, we'll baptize you right here any Sunday that you want to do it. If you want to get baptized in your pool... We'll come over and we'll baptize you in your pool. We want you to get baptized because Jesus commanded you to be baptized. And so if you're not there yet, if you haven't taken that step, 
Let us help you. We will do whatever it takes within the biblical boundaries, of course, to make that happen because God values that for you. There is something important about the ritual of being baptized. But here's a question. Why did Jesus do it? If the symbolism is that we're dying to our old self and rising anew, why did Jesus have to do it? He didn't have any sin. He didn't have anything that he needed to repent or be forgiven of. He didn't have any old self to die to and a new self to rise to. So why did Jesus do it? First off, I think it was through obedience to Jesus. Or or obedience to his father. Look at what John and Matthew say here. Uh, John says, no, 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 no. I can't baptize you. You need to be baptizing me. Do you know who you are? And what is Jesus' response? He looks at John and says this. I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is just being obedient to his father. But what else is he showing us here? He didn't need to do it. He did it out of obedience. But he was demonstrating his future death. And resurrection. Baptism was a symbol of what Jesus was going to do to save each and every one of us from our sins. So when you're baptized, you are living out symbolically that same act of sacrifice and rising from the grave when you get baptized. So again, if you have not been baptized, please let us make that happen for you. Uh, We will do it in whatever. If you're embarrassed by it, if you're like, oh, I just... Uh, I, was, I was sprinkled as an infant, and I don't know that I want to go through the whole process again in front of everybody. Man, we'll do that uh, in, a, in a much smaller setting to make it comfortable for you. If you just one of those people that said, man, I became, came to know the Lord at an older age and never got around to it, and I just don't know that it's worth it now, it is! Because Jesus commands it. Out of your obedience and love to the person who saved your eternity, go and follow what he told you to do. Let us help you do that. Now, look with me in verses 32 and 34 uh, of John, chapter 1. So John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen And I testify that this is God's chosen one. You see, the Holy Spirit descended and rested upon Jesus. Up until this point, the Holy Spirit would come and go from a person's life. The Old Testament speaks about how the Holy Spirit would come and rest on a person for a job. And then when the job was done, when when what God had for that person was completed, the Holy Spirit would go. There was no permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit in someone's life like we have today. That doesn't come along until after Jesus. Jesus, being the Son of God, is the first person that had the Holy Spirit rest upon him permanently. And that is a promise to each and every one of us. That when you become a follower of Jesus, when you make him Lord and Master and Savior of your life, he will give you the Holy Spirit And this was God's sign to John of the coming Messiah. So let me come back to my big idea. 
His royalty demands our loyalty. What area of your life have you not brought to his to, brought into loyalty to his kingship? What area, what aspect of your being or your life has not become submitted to him as your king? Uh, let me give some examples. Your physical body is supposed to be his. It no longer belongs to you when you become a follower of Jesus. Your body becomes righteously part of Jesus. And he calls you to use your body for his purposes. Now the big glaring one that the Bible talks about, especially in 1 Corinthians 6, is sexual immorality. We are called to live pure, holy lives through our physical bodies. Another example, your safety. Guys, let me crush a dream here. God never guarantees your physical safety. God guarantees your spiritual security and safety, but He never guarantees your physical safety. And we are so spoiled here in America where we don't have to worry about our physical safety in our faith, but there are people all over the world. Since Jesus came, there have been people all over the world who have died because of their faith. Your safety needs to be put into submission under Jesus' kingship. Because let me be honest with you, some of you in this room may be called to go to a dangerous area for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of you may be called to go and do something dangerous for Him. Your physical safety is not guaranteed. Guys, it's never guaranteed. Another example, your thoughts and your emotions. Jesus taught on this a lot. And let me be very frank with you here. Uh, Here in a couple months, we're going to get into some stuff that Jesus teaches that are going to step on toes. But a lot of what he teaches about has to do with our thoughts and our emotions, the way we live our lives through our thinking. For example, have you placed your lust, your anger, your pride, your divisiveness, your prejudice... Or your jealousy? Have you placed all of those into submission under the kingship of Jesus? Because they don't belong to you. They belong to Him. Every thought you think and every emotion you feel should be brought under submission to the kingship of Jesus Christ. What about your time and your obedience? We fill our time up a lot as Americans. But do we fill our time with time that's focused on our Savior, on our King? Lastly, our selfishness. Is your selfishness being submitted to His kingship? Because when you become a follower of Jesus, it's no longer about you. It's all about Him. Everything you do, everything you say, everything you think and feel, everything you own is to the kingship of Jesus Christ. And has that been submitted to Him? You see, Jesus is our King. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of Jesse, the Lamb of God. He gave everything so that we could be saved. Will you accept that salvation and live your life realizing that that requires a submission of all you to Him. 
He alone rules, not us. He alone commands, not us. He alone directs, not us. So what area of your life have you not given to him?